Welcome to the On the Air podcast, a companion to On the Air magazine, a new bi-monthly magazine from ARRL for beginner to intermediate ham radio licensees. Filling in for Becky Schoenfeld, W1BXY, I'm QST editor Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Every month, the On the Air podcast extends material found in On the Air magazine to help you learn about the many things the ham radio service and hobby have to offer. The On the Air podcast is sponsored by ICOM for the love of ham radio. Welcome to the May 2020 episode. This month, we'll take a closer look at the material from the May-June 2020 issue with real-world examples of how different types of modulation sound and advice from an experienced public service ham about go-kits. In the May-June article, Modulation Changes in the Flow, we asked you to imagine a smooth, straight, unobstructed stream flowing through a forest. Then we asked you to consider what would happen to that smooth flow if you tapped it with your finger. You'd get ripples, maybe even small waves. You'd get some kind of evidence that your touch had changed the flow of the water. The article goes on to say that in terms of radio communication, the smooth stream is like the steady radio wave known as the carrier, and the changes introduced to that smooth water by tapping your finger on it are like several types of modulation that can be applied to a carrier signal to cause it to carry information. The article goes on to describe several types of modulation, CW, AM, FM, and digital, that you'll often hear on the ham radio bands. We've put together some examples of what these things sound like, starting with a carrier wave, which we've compared to a smooth, flowing stream. Here's the unmodulated carrier. Very smooth, right? Just a single note. Now let's modulate that signal to transmit some intelligence using the simplest modulation technique for transmitting information, CW, which stands for Continuous Wave. In CW modulation, we turn the continuous wave of the carrier on and off in a predetermined pattern that the person on the receiving end can understand. Morse code is the pattern of choice for hams. Here's what CW modulation sounds like. Incidentally, in many receivers, the tones we hear when listening to Morse code are created by heterodyning, a process where two signals are combined to produce other signals. When you tune your radio across a CW signal, your radio's receiver combines it with the radio's oscillator signal to produce a signal of a few hundred hertz, and that's what you hear from your speaker when you're listening to the CW tone. Heterodyning can also sound pretty unpleasant when one signal you're receiving combines with another, like this. Well, enough of that. Back to the types of modulation. Most people have heard of AM radio, even if they don't know that AM stands for Amplitude Modulation. Here's a clip from an actual AM amateur radio contact that will give you a good idea of the kind of audio quality that's possible with AM. Well, I guess it's a testament that there's still a lot of them around today. And I guess the issue primarily with these is they do drift a little till they warmed up. If we were to look at an AM signal on a spectrum analyzer, we would see the carrier and two sidebands. A sideband is a band of frequencies produced in the modulator from the sum, the upper sideband, 
or difference, the lower sideband, between the carrier and the information signals. The sidebands are upper and lower relative to the center frequency of the carrier. All the intelligence is contained in the two sidebands, which are mirror images of each other. On the ham bands, a typical AM signal with carrier and sidebands is about 6 kHz wide. When the carrier is suppressed and one sideband is removed, we get a type of modulation known as single sideband, or SSB, which has a signal that's typically 3 kHz wide. An SSB signal might sound like this. While AM can deliver high-quality voice transmissions because of its wider bandwidth, the narrow bandwidth and power economy of SSB make it a very efficient method for effectively communicating by voice over radio. Like voice amplitude modulation, frequency modulation for voice communication begins by using a microphone to convert a voice into electrical current. Instead of varying the intensity of the carrier, as AM does, in FM the audio signal changes the frequency of the carrier. An amateur radio FM transmission sounds like this. N1VBS, good afternoon, good morning from WA1SFH. As for digital modulation, most of the digital techniques used in ham radio require messages to be typed on a computer keyboard and use audio frequency shift keying, or AFSK, a modulation technique where a computer converts data into audio tones of varying audio frequency, or pitch. Here's just one example of the many digitally modulated signals you'll hear on the ham bands. The article, Build Your Go Kit, offers guidelines for what to include in this collection of gear that's so important for hams who want to be of service to their communities. We talked to John Bloodgood, KD0SFY, Emergency Coordinator and Public Information Officer for the Pikes Peak Aries in Colorado to get his take on Go Kit Essentials. Good evening, John. Good evening, Steve. I have a perfect question to start off the discussion, and that is, for all of those who may not know, what is a go-kit? Well, the definitions will vary a little bit depending on who you ask. Um, so a, a go-kit to me is everything that I need to go forth and operate for a, a specific period of time, be it 12 hours, 24 hours, 72 hours. In your opinion, why does a ham need a go-kit? Well, it depends on what they're in the hobby for, but uh, you know, if you're doing any kind of mobile operations or portable operations where you might be set up in the field, if you're working with Aries Racies or other kind of uh, group where you might have to set up in support of a served agency, um, if you're just setting up in a park as a demonstration uh, it's you want to have everything all together and basically in one kit so that you don't have to kind of scramble and put something together at the last minute putting yourself in the shoes of a relatively new ham what would you recommend if one was uh, putting together his or her first go kit well the first thing is figure out what it is you want to accomplish so if you are a uh, person who's doing uh, weather chasing, for example, uh, you're going to have a specific set of needs that you want to fulfill, and you're probably going to be operating from your car. Uh, so you want to tailor your kit towards that. If you're immediately getting involved in Aries and you're working with a served agency like the Red Cross, 
and talk to your other ARIES members and find out what it is that you need to have in your kit. Um, if you're looking at things like setting up out in the field where there's no AC available, then you also have to take a look at your power options. So it's going to vary a little bit depending on what it is that you want to accomplish. And also, what bands are you going to use? Are you going to use just VHF, UHF, or are you going to be an HF operator? Do you have a basic go kit yourself, or do you have several varieties? I actually kind of have several varieties. So the way I divide mine up is I have my go boxes, which are my radios and power supplies and data devices and things like that. And then I've got my kit that I carry with that that has all of my supplies. Uh, so I have an everyday carry kit that I have with me just about every place I go. I have stuff that's always in the vehicle. And then I can use kind of a modular concept and using the, the uh, everyday carrier EDC with what's in the car and then maybe uh, another rucksack that's got some extra equipment in it. I can plus that up to be a, a very complete 72-hour or longer kit. Um, so, yeah, I've got, I've got a couple of varieties. The, the everyday carry kit, for example, would be perfect for me if I'm working in HT or if I'm working out of my vehicle. The on-the-air article Go Kit Basics recommends uh, what you might call a modular approach, which you really just touched on, a gear module, a uh, comfort and safety module, and so on. Do you have any recommendations for how to keep those modules kind of distinct from one another? Any storage or packing tips? Well, uh, resealable plastic bags, a.k.a. Ziploc bags, uh, those things can be your best friend. Um, so having bags, you know, having a bag, a uh, rucksack or something that's got different compartments or that has, uh, with a, the, most of the military-based kits now, they have something called uh, Molly or Pals, which is uh, allows you to put uh, small packets on the outside or carriers so you can actually have uh, an admin packet or a first aid packet or something like that on the outside of a rucksack or the outside of a bag. Um, so you do want to kind of compartmentalize so that everything's not like rumbling around in the middle, middle of a, one great big huge cavity. Uh, so trying to stay organized like that does help a great deal uh, for you to find stuff and for other people to find stuff if you have to direct them where to get it out of your out of your kit. Would that include, John, uh, any kind of first aid or medical supplies? I do carry a trauma kit in my car. Um, I do have some advanced training out of the military. So I do have some stuff that's beyond what is normally recommended that people carry. Um, I'm very leery about recommending medical supplies because uh, you can get into real trouble real fast unless you're actually a medical professional. So, but trauma kits, which are a little bit more than a basic first aid kit with your finger bandages and and things like that, we're talking about stuff like uh, control the bleed or stop the bleed type of programs. So we're talking about tourniquets. Uh, we're talking about large bandages for controlling bleeding. Uh, something that's going to be immediately life-saving. Uh, those kind of things I do carry with me. Um, I don't carry the little finger bandages. We call those boo-boo kits or snivel kits. And medicine, I really leery about carrying any medicine other than for myself. 
I will carry typically aspirin. I will carry pink tummy tablets and I will carry Benadryl. And that is about the extent of it. Uh, I will not use those on somebody else unless it is absolutely life-saving. Thinking about long deployments, John, uh, what about water purification? I know that, or at least I've seen these uh, rather compact water purification kits now that are available. Uh, are those appropriate? You know, I don't find a lot of need for those. Uh, you can get the little hand pump ones from your local uh, outdoor camping stores, um, the problem is that, you know, they, a lot of times they take a lot of pumps just to get a liter of water. Uh, there are things out there like the filtration straws or filtration bottles that have stuff that's built in. Um, I wouldn't pack anything that's too heavy unless it's, I know that I'm going someplace that's an austere location. Uh, and if I'm doing that, then I'm probably going to bring a gravity filtration kit. So that's going to be like a big bladder that goes, you fill it up with water and then it's got a filter in the middle and then it drains into uh, basically a bucket. I'm not usually going to carry a water filtration kit with me, uh, but that's just my situation here. Other people may find that, you know, they're out hiking in the woods all the time and they want to have a water filtration kit with them. So, you know, weigh your options and just be aware that some of those pump filtration ones require a lot of pumps and some of the filter straws and things like that require a lot of suction. So you may have to try them and figure out which one is right for you. Oh, that makes sense. Well, a moment ago when you were talking about your various kits that you do have, what would you advise somebody if they're thinking, well, okay, I'm going to assemble a kit, but should I keep it in my house? Should I keep it in my basement? Should I keep it in my car? Or does it matter? It does matter to some degree. Um, that's why I have what I call my, my EDC or everyday carry kit. So that one is with me just about all the time. Um, some people joke that I carry it with me all, literally everywhere. Um, but that's a very small rucksack. If you go to some of the major uh, companies out there, they might call it a 12-hour pack or something like that. So it's not very big. Then there's the stuff that I do have in my car that I know I'm only going to use if my vehicle is present. So those are things that are going to be a lot heavier uh, to carry uh, or, or more bulky and things like that. And then... Having the 72-hour kit where you've got, you know, enough clothing for three days and, you know, maybe your toothpaste and shampoo or soap or something like that that you're going to need, um, you know, that's something that you might leave at home, but you have it set away someplace where you can grab it quickly. Uh, so you don't want this thing buried in a closet someplace. Not trying to think of everything here but the kitchen sink, but <laughs> what about food, John? Would you even, would you go as far as to put, oh, I don't know, meals ready to eat in a go kit? If I'm going for 72 hours, then I may consider taking something like an MRE uh, or one of the freeze-dried backpacking or camping meal type things. Um, there's a general rule I kind of approach it with the rule of threes, which is basically, you know, you can you can survive without breathing for three minutes and you can survive without shelter for, you know, so many hours. And you can survive without water for three days. You can survive without food for like, you know, three weeks or 30 days. Um, so 
I'll carry some small snacks with me, jerky, uh, nut bars, granola bars type of thing, maybe, you know, an energy bar. Uh, but I won't carry a lot of food usually. I will carry more fluids than I will food. Now, that makes sense. John, one more thing that occurred to me. Somebody who doesn't go on frequent deployments might put together a kit and put it in their trunk, put it somewhere in their house. How often should they examine that kit? Make sure that everything is ready to go. You know, if there's food, make sure it's not spoiled or batteries are charged, that kind of thing. Uh, depending on your temperatures that are happening in your vehicle, uh, you'll probably want to look at that every three to six months. Uh, if you've got food items in there, you're going to want to know what the expiration dates are on them. Uh, keeping in mind that some food items are best by dates, meaning they're still perfectly edible after the, the best by date. Other foods, foods will spoil uh, or go bad and you want to change them out. Um, water, you want to change that out every now and then. Um, if you've got equipment in there like candles, and like where I live in Colorado, I've got uh, uh, an eight-hour eight candle in my car. Well, it's getting to be warmer, so I no longer need to keep the candle in my car. And as I go into summer, if I leave the candle in there, the candle's going to melt. And ask me how I know, but once that candle melts, it's a real pain to clean that up. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all good advice, John. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, which took a deeper dive into the material from the May-June 2020 issue of On the Air magazine. We'll be back in June with tips to help you prepare for ARRL Field Day. In the meantime, feel free to send comments about On the Air to ota at arrl.org. Read our blog at arrl.org forward slash OTA hyphen blog or learn more about ARRL membership at ARRL.org. Until next time, I'm Steve Ford, WB8IMY73s.